All right, I'm here with Wes Mabry of 1245 Consulting. What's going on, man? Um, not a lot, just kind of enjoying the day. It's Friday and uh, a good day to talk a little bit of shop. We've got the tax deadline rapidly approaching. 1015 is the extension deadline for individuals. So that's kind of keeping us a little bit more busy than usual, but always some good downtime on the other side of that. And it's also coinciding with uh, a playoff race between my team and your team, the Astros Ooh. and the Rangers. So Super interesting. So you need to keep your eye on Seattle, man. You've got, I think, like six of the last nine is, is with them and you guys are tied for second in the division. It's a wild race, man. I'm having, it's almost like we've been gifted playoff ball a week and a half early. I know, which is good as a Baylor fan, football season ended really quickly. So that's true. You are done for the year. Hey, your Saturdays are free. So look out, look on the bright side. And I'm not sure when this will air, but I guess maybe now I'll have to air it quicker because we're talking about this stuff, but I've already looked at ticket. The Rangers last game is on a Saturday, next Saturday in seattle and i've already looked at plane prices and tickets so if that game if that game is a playoff game essentially i'm going it so could be my wife doesn't know so yet but we're the strohs are there the week uh well basically monday tuesday wednesday of this next coming week and i have some stuff in seattle i have to do but i couldn't I justify going because i also have a conference to go to at the end of the week so i'd basically be gone all week watching baseball and, and uh, eating lunches and dinners my mom my, i'm sorry my wife would be huge mad <laughs> i get it man well um today we're going to get into real estate taxes cost segregation what you do is you save real estate investors money on taxes um, but before we dive in deep into the nuts and bolts of it I kind of want to get started with why did you get into cost segregation? How did you start a cost segregation company? Um, so I fell into it from the W2 side. I was working with a guy um, who basically was flipping office buildings and working there. I was kind of tracking the cost of like what it costs to rehab an office building. So I had some familiarity with, you know, prices and building components and that was kind of while I was in school. And then they asked me what I wanted to do afterwards. I just gave them some canned answer about staying in real estate. And they recommended this job to me. And I went to go work for an appraisal firm who was and still is the only appraisal firm I know of in the country that's using appraisers to do cost segregation work. And I did just cost seg work as an appraiser for a little over a decade and then got hired away by an engineering firm on the East Coast uh, to do cost seg there. And while I was there, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 came out and ushered in that bonus depreciation that we're seeing for the first time ever on used assets. And I just kind of thought that, you know, there's no better time to really start my own cost seg firm because it was just sold itself. The losses were huge. And uh, I did. And it was great. And for a couple of years there, I had a, a really good job. And then it's like overnight, it just turned into a business. It was more work than I could handle. I had to bring on employees and back office. And and now we're doing doing pretty good, man. Still rocking and rolling, even though that bonus depreciation is sunsetting. So has the demand increased quite a bit for cost seg studies starting 2017? Absolutely. So with the bonus depreciation, now folks that have you know properties with just a couple hundred thousand in basis, are getting losses, you know, north of 50K, whereas that wouldn't be the case without the bonus depreciation. Their loss in year one might not equal the fee they would have to pay to do the study. So it kind of opened the door to a whole new group of investors 
also coincided directly with the increased popularity in short-term rentals. Um, and so that just kind of flooded the market with a lot more eyeballs and their tax professionals who aren't always uh, kind of on the front end of what's going on in the real estate asset depreciation space. And so we're able to kind of educate two new client bases at one time. And uh, it's just been an awesome windfall. Man, you touched on so many things that we're going to get to. Um, but I think first it'd be helpful for our listeners to kind of go through the basics of what is cost segregation? What is bonus depreciation? Why does it matter? And how does it affect um, their tax return? So maybe start off with, so you, say I buy a building, a multifamily building, say it's a duplex or a quadplex or whatever. And I go to Wes, I'm like, hey, what is this cost segregation stuff? How are you going to save me money? What happens? Yeah, so we would um, first analyze the property to try to figure out what your basis is in this investment. What you paid for it is one thing. What your basis that you're able to depreciate is an entirely different thing, mainly because of the value of the land that's tucked in there. When you buy real property, you buy two things. You buy the dirt and then all the improvements on top. of it. That dirt can't be depreciated, so we'll need to value it. Generally speaking, we follow the IRS's guidance and go see what the county values the dirt at and use that same percentage applied to your purchase price to back it out. So now we've got, let's say you paid, you know, half a million for a fourplex and we back out a hundred thousand for land, which can't be depreciated. Now we've got an improvement basis of 400 K to work with inside that 400 K. Again, that's all the improvements to the land. You've got various things that can be depreciated at a much quicker rate than others. Interior components like your floor, uh, your window covering, maybe appliances and cabinets if you're in that multifamily space. Those things you can write off pretty quick. Outside the building, your driveway, your landscaping, your irrigation, your fencing, those are all also improvements to land. Um, and they can also be depreciated pretty quickly. So we'll value the whole thing including the roof, the windows, the doors, the walls, HVAC, plumbing system, all that stuff that can't be depreciated very quickly, but we will analyze it all. Some of those costs will put on a schedule that you can write off quick and take bonus depreciation advantages um, and then separate those things. What you'll have at the end of the day is probably 30% of that 400K we talked about that will then count as a loss against your income. So, you know, 120K. And then what is that able to offset? Now that kind of is where it starts to split off. You know, are you a pro at real estate, real estate professional status, in which case it offsets any income that you're generating? If that 120K is considered uh, what's called often called a passive loss, then it only gets passive income offset. So maybe the rents that are coming in from that building, maybe you have some other passive activities that that can help with. Um, but that's kind of how it works at a nutshell, looking at your acquisition, determining the basis, separating the component costs, and then using that component cost or various component costs as a way to offset uh, income tax liabilities. Yeah, so it's really as simple as that. You buy a $500,000 building, and if you're a real estate professional, that means there's technical terms to it, but if you work in real estate, you're a real estate professional, you don't work in real estate, you're not. And it's even more nuanced than that. So don't go off what I just said to make sure and follow the laws that you're a real estate professional. But if you buy a $500,000 building and the land value is 100,000, 
typically of that 400,000 that you can depreciate 30% of it typically. And Wes and his team have to go in there and do a study and divide it into five, 10, 15 year property and then depreciate it, et cetera. But typically 120,000 of that $400,000 can be written off against any income for a real estate investor. That's correct. So I'll add to that a couple things. If, uh, if I was working a W2, but my wife was able to qualify or spouse was able to qualify for that real estate professional status, that's pretty impactful because the loss she, she's able to be the real estate pro. It can offset my income because of, you know, how joint filings work. So there's some power in that. Um, if the loss is associated with your business, a lot of good companies out there are also real estate companies for a reason because that loss uh, through depreciation can be taken by the business and then flow through to you as an individual. So there's another twist to it there. Uh, and then that 30% that we talked about, that's middle of the fairway for um, single family, short-term rentals, apartment complexes, stuff like that. We'll see a higher percentage in other asset classes. Uh, maybe you're in the single tenant retail space and you've got a lot of uh, quick service restaurants. Those usually perform north of 40. Uh, car wash guys, quick lube restaurants, they can write the whole thing off. 100% of that basis is bonus eligible. We're currently in 80% bonus environment. So technically they can write 80% off of it, but it's that's still a good shot in the arm. Um, and then some properties don't do well, don't meet that 30% threshold. That would include stuff like uh, maybe outdoor industrial storage. There's really not a lot of structure to work with to depreciate there. Um, like wide open warehouse storage might not touch that 30% threshold. Metal self-storage is between 20 and 30. That's been a pretty popular asset class for a lot of folks over the last few years. Climate controlled storage will certainly cross that 30% threshold. Um, so it kind of depends on what you buy, but if we're talking in generalities, yeah, 30% is a pretty solid number. What about for a new build? A uh, new build of what? Say I build, build right? a self-store. I go buy a piece of land across yeah. the street and I do a self-storage. How does bonus depreciation work on that? Whether it's new or used, <clears throat> the, the percentage parameters that we've just been talking about are going to be the same. Okay. Sounds a little counterintuitive, but we're analyzing a whole and whether that whole is used or brand new, it should shake out the same way. About 15% of that whole piece of the pie should be reclassified to 15 year and about 15% of that whole pie should be reclassified um, to 15 year. Well, 15 and five year are going to make up the bulk of it. And the rest and, will be structure. And what's not bonus depreciated that like, since we're in that, so I guess this is helpful to tell the listeners. So that you, you tell it the, how the hundred percent, 80, 60, 40, you can tell it better than me. Yeah. So we had a good window of hundred percent bonus depreciation. And what is bonus depreciation eligible are short life asset reclassifications. That's everything 20 years and under two of the, Big buckets in cost seg are five year and 15 year. There's also a structural component that is not bonus eligible, and that's 27 and a half year if you're in the multifamily game. 
It's 39 year for pretty much everything else that's commercial property. Uh, so those you can't take that 100% bonus on. But there's a window for bonus. They, they kind of wrote that into the tax law as a sunsetting provision. That window is September 27, 2017 to year in 2022 for 100% bonus. Then it begins to step down 20% a year. So 2023 acquisitions will be 80% bonus eligible. 2024, now we're 60% bonus eligible. So on until it's completely phased out in, let's say 27 off the top of my head. Uh, cost seg will still be a thing, but now that five-year asset bucket that we talked about that what that was you know bonus eligible at 100% rate or an 80% rate depending on when you bought it, now it gets depreciated evenly over five years. That 15-year bucket that gets depreciated evenly over 15 years, so it is still technically being accelerated because it would otherwise be evenly over 27 and a half years or evenly over 15. Uh, 39 years. So the rate at which it's depreciating is being accelerated. It's just not amplified by bonus depreciation once we get all the way through these sunset provisions. There's some chitter chatter about it getting extended. I'm not, I'm not buying in. I, mean, I hope it does. It's great for business, uh, but I'm not buying it. There's kind of a, a tax the rich climate now. And most players in the space are on the higher end of the socioeconomic scale. And I, I don't expect them to be provided that um, kind of gift from the tax code, if you will, provided that, you know, maybe there's an administration change that uh, has some different thoughts on it, but I'm not optimistic it'll be reset. So if I'm listening to this and I'm a real estate professional and I have not been taking advantage of this, like I probably should go fire my CPA, fire someone. No, stop. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm a CPA. Uh, so well, to the tax professionals, I'm sorry, finish the question. I, I, I was going to say, well, what can I go do if I've been buying buildings since 2010? What yeah, should I do okay. if I haven't been bonus? Sure. We can do a retroactive analysis. We can go back in time and catch up on depreciation that you may have missed. There's an extra step there. Um, we've got to file what's called a 3115, Form 3115 is a change in accounting method form. And it does exactly what it says its name is. It goes and changes your straight line method to a modified accelerated method, which is cost segregation. And so you kind of go back in time and catch up on what you missed. If you bought something in that bonus window, man, you're really gonna love the results. If you bought anything in the last 15 years, the results are probably gonna be in your favor when we kind of net out what you've already taken and maybe what you should have taken if you did cost seg at the onset. Anything more than 15 years old is probably a wash at this point because you're looking at an asset that is basically halfway depreciated, halfway to full depreciation, which means there's just no losses left. So in your tax professional's defense, if they don't have good familiarity with um, you know, asset depreciation, it's a very specific portion of the tax code, and it's undergone generational change twice in the last 10 years. Um, TCJA during the Trump administration, CARES Act during the Biden administration were both sweeping tax law changes. That makes it really challenging for a lot of tax professionals, particularly ones that do high volume, maybe not in the real estate space, to kind of keep up with what's going on. Um, so. 
my best advice to clients that have a tax professional that hasn't done this is just kind of get them in the loop, let them know what's going on, put my team in front of them. Uh, we'll make it easy for them. It's part of what we do. And, and it also kind of opens up a, a business channel for us. Once those guys are like, oh, great, just turn them over to 1245, let them kind of do their thing and analyze the real estate specific piece. And then they handle the filing. It's it's a really good relationship. Absolutely. And what, so if I bought a property in the end of 2017 and I'm listening to this and I decide to go back and file the form 3115 and change my depreciation, do I have to file an amended return, a tax return for 2018, 2019, 2020? The 3115 is designed specifically to avoid having to amend returns. Okay. Um, what it does is changes the method you're using to account for the asset. It doesn't change your basis, change your land allocation, stuff like that. You've got to go back and admin, but it's unlikely that you're doing that unless a pretty drastic mistake was made in booking the asset. If you're yeah. only changing the method by which you're accounting for it, then the 3115 completely avoids amendments. That's a great question. We get that regularly from folks in the tax professional space. They're like, no, you don't want to go back and recapture, you recapture that depreciation because um, you know you got to admit your taxes, but it's simply not the case. 3115 will be filed timely with your current year's return. So right now we're sending them out for clients that are closing their books on the 2022 tax year. They've extended to you know, October of uh, or September of 2023. They want to Say, okay, I'm filing my timely 2022 return, but I'm looking back into 1918, maybe 2020 to go and grab some extra depreciation. It's fair play. And then that, so that depreciation is applied on the current year return. That's correct. Yeah. Becomes an offset to your 2022 income tax liabilities. Many of our clients are going back and dipping into that bonus depreciation window and recovering so many losses that they can't even use them all on this 2022 return. It has completely outstripped their income tax liability. Good news. You don't lose that extra depreciation that you can't use. Say you made, you know, 350 this year. We went and did a study that said, oh, well, you also lost 600 in, you know, 2020. If you want to, you know, apply that to 2022, now you have a surplus of losses. And there will be what's technically called suspended and carried forward into the next tax year. So you get to take another bite at that apple when it's time to file 2023. Awesome. So let's say I am, I'm not a real estate professional and I bought a house in 2016 here in the Metroplex and I refinanced in 2020 at a two and a half percent rate and my family has grown and I want to move. I'm not a real estate professional, but I decide I don't want to sell this house. It's in a good part of town. It's small. I can't live there anymore because my family's growing, but it's, I want to keep it because my interest rate's two and a half percent and yeah. I'm going to, and I'm able to make it a short-term rental mm -hmm. and I make it a short-term rental in 2023 and I buy a bigger house in the suburbs in 2023. How does cost seg apply to that? Happy to walk you through that. And we're seeing that more and more, particularly because 
so many people don't want to get out from under that low rate that they locked in in a, a couple years ago. Well, a couple months ago when rates were incredibly favorable. So here's how this shakes out. When you can convert a primary to an income producing property, when you do that, you've, we've got to go back now and look at that. Remember that basis we talked about at the head of the interview? We got to figure that out. So what you're subject to is the lesser of what you originally paid for the property plus any improvements that you might have made, maybe added a deck and a pool or whatever, or fair market value at the time of conversion. There is no way your property went down in value if you bought in 16 in DFW. And you can say that, I mean, you can throw that blanket over the state of Texas and many other states in the U.S. So your basis is going to be what you originally paid for, plus whatever you put in to improve it. And then we've got to back out that land again. So we'll reference the county, see what that split is. Um, and now you've got a depreciable income producing asset on your books for the current year. Uh, so it would become a rental when it's ready and available for the use as a rental. This is what we call placing the property in service. Because you're placing the property in service in 2023. Did I understand that fact pattern correctly yeah. this year? Okay, so now you're subject to 80% bonus depreciation on this asset. Congratulations. We're going to do a cost study on that, reclassify about 30% of that basis to a short life asset category on which you're going to be able to take 80% bonus depreciation. It's a huge loss for you. Because you made this property a short-term rental, and just to put parameters around that, 30 days or less needs to be your average length of stay on a short-term rental. It will be what's technically called transient housing. And this is basically you have a hotel, right? So it's a non-residential property. Um, if you meet certain qualifications for short-term rental ownership, you are running a business, not a rental activity. And if you meet uh, different thresholds, this can be active income for you. I'd encourage your listeners to really dive in on this, but I'll give them just kind of the cliff notes. That 750 hour requirement that you would otherwise have to meet to be a real estate professional under any other asset class besides short term rentals is now material participation. And I think it's like, man, I don't want to misquote this because I don't spend a whole lot of time in this space, but. Um, maybe, what is it? Seven days or less needs to be the average stay. And then you need to material participate. You need to provide some kind of service in that, um, sector akin to like doing the booking instead of having third party, right. uh, software do the booking or maybe the cleaning or you provide some maintenance. Um, dig into that. I'm sorry. I'm not a hundred percent prepared to wrap those off the top of my head, but STR is a great space to be in right now because of favorable tax legislation. So like, say you bought a $500,000 house, you, you, your family needs to move, but you don't want to sell it. The land's worth a hundred thousand, 400,000 times 30%. That's 120 grand. And if you actively participate and you get the short-term rental, so even if you have a regular job like me and you're not in real estate, if you're participating in getting those short-term rental loopholes, that's 120 grand in 2023 off your tax return. If you're hitting- It's 120 grand if you're in the 100% bonus window. So yeah. that would be- 
27%. Placed in service prior to 2022 year end after 927.17. So that's your 100% bonus window. If you do it in 2023, you're in the 80% window. So everything you say yes still applies with the exception of that 120 is 80% bonus eligible. So you're still looking at 96K. 96K times 30%. So you're saving yourself 30 to 40 grand in taxes. Bingo. So everyone, if you're listening and that applies to you, call Wes, get a, see if you need to get a cost seg done, see if you can save some taxes. Sure. And another good thing I like that you added in there at the end was we've been talking about some big number losses, 120K. That drives your tax liability down. So you've got to apply your tax rate to the loss to really figure out the dollars you're saving. That's that 120K isn't what you're saving out of pocket. It's what you're lowering your tax basis by. So and say if you made 240K, you've now cut your tax liability in half. Instead of paying taxes on 240, you're now paying taxes on 120. Um, and to figure out again, what that loss through depreciation may be worth to you, throw your tax rate at it. Maybe it's 30, maybe your full top margin, 37. Uh, most states don't play around with bonus depreciation. There's very little reciprocity. So it's not going to provide you with relief on the state side. This is a federal issue. And let's switch from short-term rentals to real estate pros. So back to real estate pros, you had a tweet in the summer about kind of, so let's assume a real estate broker makes 600 grand in a year. Mm -hmm. They'll pay about 150 grand in taxes. Say they're, they go buy a two and a half million dollar industrial property. Um, they would get a loss of 600K in year one, right? Mm -hmm. And wipe out their 150K tax bill. So maybe- Yeah, because they're pros. Yeah, kind of talk about that and that life cycle of being a broker, getting income, buying real estate, deferring the taxes, reinvesting the cash flow, then Mm -hmm. either exchanging it or keeping it until you die. Yeah, so that's a, a good life cycle for offsetting income. If you're able to also make acquisitions that will kick off losses that outstrip your income, you've just kind of put yourself in a cycle of not paying taxes. And we had a uh, president in the office that was criticized for this vocally. Like this man pays no taxes it's because he's in the real estate game. And the tax laws are incredibly favorable to those that participate actively in it. Um, so what that tweet was analyzing was income at a certain level and, and kind of trying to figure out, all right, through what lens do I need to use to say, all right, I need to go and look at real estate assets in this price point because the, those in that price point should kick off about this much depreciation. And that's exactly how much depreciation I need to wipe my liability for the year. So in that case, we were looking at, I think maybe, I don't know, it was like a $2 million price range for real estate. If we just say for estimation purposes, the land is 20%. Again, we got to back that out. That gives you an improvement basis of a million six. If we typically find 30% of that million six gets reclassed and then eligible for bonus. So that's 480K, roughly half a million. We're now in the 80% bonus window. I don't remember if that tweet was in the 180% yeah. window, but for whatever purposes, we are now in the 
80% bonus window. If we apply that 80% to the 480K, we're now got a loss of 380K. So, yeah, if that's your income for the year, congrats. You're not paying taxes, provided you get that, um, you know, real estate professional status requirement and that the property is able to actually meet that 30% reclassification threshold. It's a phenomenal strategy that's employed by a ton of folks in the brokerage space. Yeah. And I know the answer to this. I know you definitely know the answer to this, but what if I buy a $2 million property and I only put a hundred thousand dollars down? Can I only do 80% of that hundred thousand? Yeah, no, it's the whole thing. It's the part that you've levered and the part that you have equity in. It's the whole damn thing, man. So in that case, we used just a few moments ago about the $2 million property. You know, what's 20% down on that's 400 K. So the loss that we're going to get through cost segregation and accelerated depreciation is close to equaling your out-of-pocket costs. Another good way to kind of look at it is uh, as a year one benefit, like, okay, what do I got to come out of pocket with? Or what am I going to get to in- offset my income with? And then start kind of penciling it that way. We, we, we see an uptick in activity over the last maybe two or three years with folks contacting us ahead of the acquisition specifically so they can run this type of analysis. Um, when they're trying to make deals pencil, uh, they're not banking on depreciation for their investment making decisions. And I would encourage absolutely no one to do that. Um, it's part of the investment decision, but it shouldn't be what drives it. Um, and they'll, you know, Generally speaking, we're post-acquisition services. You close on a property, you get your cost study done. But now we're seeing more and more activity on the front end with folks wanting us to put, uh, you know, a detailed analysis together for them. And we do it all the time. It doesn't cost anything to get a proposal from us or really any player in the space. Um, and it allows them to really sharpen their pencil on what not only the income generation would look like, but what the tax advantages are as well. I want to do, we're running close to the end of our time. So I want to ask two more questions. So how should, if I'm just a LP in an investment and I'm investing in several funds, how should I think about depreciation and how GPs are passing depreciation to the investors? What should I be on the lookout for? Which questions should I ask? So I am an LP in some investments and the, GPs I'm with do not distribute the losses from um, accelerated depreciation. And I'm okay with that because I can't use them and I'm kind of new to the LP game. Um, so I guess it would depend on the, the type of GP you're going after. If you're, if you're you know, jumping in bed with some guys that have really been at it for a while, they're not very highly incentivized to share those losses. Whereas maybe if you've got a newer guy, um, to the GP game. Maybe that's something they offer to help attract investments. But I will say this, if it doesn't help me out personally in the near term, again, even though I play in the space, I'm not a real estate professional for taxation purposes. Um, So the loss would, yeah, I'm not, I'm in a kind of a different, different side of the game. And I I just kind of look at things analytically and don't actively participate in um, distribution or trade of, of real property. So um, the way I look at it is this, if you're a, an LP and you're going into the, um, into that space, 
the income that you're getting from the property is going to be a tax liability for you. It's probably not going to be that much uh, as you begin that journey, but there will be an exit event at some point in time, whether that's a cash out refi or they just slang the property for profit. That's when you're going to get hit with a pretty big tax liability. And while you may not have been able to use those passive losses um, to kind of offset a, a, a large chunk of money during the distribution cycle, the income distribution cycle of that investment, once there's an exit event, those suspended passive losses that we talked about earlier can really help out. Yeah. So reinvestment's always an option, but uh, I like to think of it as this, if you're getting the losses on the K1 from the play um, and you're an LP and you can't use them, just sit tight because yeah. that investment will come full cycle. And uh, if your accountant's doing things right, then they're suspending them on your return and you should be at some point able to, uh, to cash in on that. I think we have to hit on um, the hairy subject of depreciation recapture before we yeah, yeah. get out of here. Otherwise people are going to say, well, the government's going to get their money back at some point. You got to pay taxes at some point. So maybe just touch right. on depreciation recapture and yeah, just yeah. go from there. So when you accelerate depreciation, you are kind of carving out some, some buckets, uh, some asset categories, if you will, that you're going to write off very quickly. And then when you sell the property, you will be paying a depreciation recapture on the depreciation that you've taken, whether or not you do cost seg. If you don't do cost seg, it's kind of all capital gain uh, and you get that 20%. If you do cost seg, you, the tax you pay at exit is higher. It's at your ordinary rate. So it could be 30% instead of 20, 37% instead of 20, whatever the case may be. Um, but that's only on the depreciation that you take. It's not on the entire gain. So uh, we've modeled this out a couple of times, it's a lot of facts and circumstances to the recapture. Um, if you're holding on the other side of two, three years, it's not going to impact your deal. It's not going to outstrip the benefit that you would have through the time value of money, bonus depreciation considerations, income offset considerations. Um, and there are ways to completely avoid it. 1031, there's no recapture tax. Um, and there was also a phenomenal tweet floating around the other day um, where you kind of revalue the assets on sale. It's uh, sometimes in the accounting world called matching the buckets. It's like, um, think of it in terms of like, that property you bought has increased in value in certain components, maybe the land, for example, um, but also decreased in value in certain ways because you've been you know, closing doors and flushing toilets for five or 10 years. All that stuff is now worth less than what it originally was when you bought it. And there's ways to use that type of valuation to mitigate recapture burdens, not avoid. Key thing to remember is this, cost segregation in and of itself is a tax deferment and the day will come when the tax is due. There's some levers you can pull to shield yourself, if not outright avoid that tax, again, until later. So he's coming, man. Uncle Sam never forgets. Yeah. Well, I always say, and I'm not the... For, I've heard someone smarter than me say it, but the best time to pay taxes is either never or later. And so cost yeah. helps you do that. And uh, before we go, what does it look like to engage you? Um, if I feel like you could be a good fit, how do I reach out? And what does that process look like? Wes at 1245consulting.com. 
Um, pretty easy guy to get a hold of. Uh, at 12445 Consulting on Twitter. I'm on, stay on, uh, you know, pretty active participant in that arena. Um, you know, if you've got some questions about losses that your property might be holding, that's what we do day in and day out. I mean, we got an entire staff dedicated to putting together preliminary analysis and getting them out to their clients and their tax professionals. Um, not a hard guy to get a hold of. Awesome. Y'all check them out. Wes at 1245consulting.com. Wes Mabry, appreciate your brother. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me on, Jake. All the best to you, but maybe not your baseball team. And when, uh, uh, we'll talk soon. Maybe not your football team. <laughs> See you, dude. Oh, yeah. They're the worst. Jake Crandall offers products and services using the following business names. Foster Financial Group or Canvas Financial, Insurance and Financial Services, Emeritus Investment Company, LLC, AIC, member FINRA, SIPC, Securities and Investments, Emeritus Advisory Services, AAS, Investment Advisory Services, AIC and AAS are not affiliated with Foster Financial Group or Canvas Financial. Information provided should not be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Please contact a financial advisor to discuss your personal financial situation.